Steve. Not a short man, but comparatively. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't preach as often as Steve does. That makes sense. I'm the, the youth pastor here. Steve uh, is the preacher. But uh, when, I, when I do get the chance to get up here five, six times a year, uh, I like to, to tell a story or two to give you a glimpse into to who I am a little bit. Because uh, you know teenagers, I feel like, uh, end up getting to know me fairly well. But adults don't always. And so uh, here's a treat for you today. Uh, I thought I'd give you some insight into my personality today. So here it is. I like to be in charge of stuff. (laughs) That's my personality, right? It's not necessarily that I'm a control freak, like all the time. Um, It's that I want people to listen to me about things. I feel like that's where it comes from. Like getting interrupted is one of my biggest pet peeves because I want to be listened to, right? Um, and, and over the years, I've learned that uh, I have to be careful about the things I try to be in charge of because I'm not good at everything. There are some things I just shouldn't be in charge of. So when I was in college, our, our athletic director was also in charge of a, of a homeschool basketball league uh, in, in the city, in Lansing, Michigan, um, for middle school students mainly. And, uh, and I used to play some pickup basketball uh, at his church in the mornings uh, at a gym. And, and one morning he asked me if I was interested in being a referee uh, for these league games sometimes, just kind of as an extra body, I, I, you know, just to make sure they have, you know, extra eyes on what was going on on the court. And, and I like basketball, and I like the rules, <laughs> and I like being in charge of things. Uh, and, and he was going to pay me, and I was in college, and so I said, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds good. Um, I'll be a referee. So I showed up to the court that night later, and I was supposed to just help uh, the head referee and learn from him But there was a mix-up that day, and the only other ref that was there was another student that was just my my age, 19 years old, that had also never refereed a basketball game before. Um, And so we did like rock, paper, scissors to see who would be in charge, who would be the head ref. And I figured, how hard can it be, right? Like I watch sports all the time growing up, and I always seem to know how to do a better job than those refs, right? So (laughs) I'm sure I could do it. Uh, and so, yeah, I was, the, I was the head referee at age 19, and man, it was a disaster. It, did, it could not have gone very much worse. Um, the other ref was terrified to blow his whistle, um, and so I figured it was mostly up to me to make sure that fouls were called. And the first time I tried to call a foul, I couldn't get my whistle to my mouth. Like it was, I kept missing it. And, and like while I was trying to blow the whistle, like the play just continued like in the other direction. Uh, and I had to like stop everything and go to the scorer's table and like, like no, that basket didn't count because I was trying to call a foul. They're like, but you didn't. I'm like, well, I did just late. And like, so it was bad, right? And so from that point on, I decided to keep the whistle in my mouth. Because I couldn't get it to my mouth fast enough, I needed to keep it there. Um, but I kept accidentally blowing the whistle, <laughs> like, w- like when I was breathing. <laughs> and everyone would stop and look at me to like, hear what the, the foul call was. And so like, I started off, I was just, like, admitting it was an accident. And like, I have a soccer background, so I kept being like, play on! Right? And like, they're like, no, when you blow the whistle, it stops the game. Um, and then sometimes I just started making stuff up, like making up fouls, so it looked like I did it on purpose. Um, and I didn't look so bad. But the worst, the worst was when they shot three-pointers. Because I watched a lot of basketball. I knew from the, the NBA that the ref was supposed to hold up three fingers to indicate that the shot would count as a three-pointer if they made it. And then if the shot went in, the ref would do the, like, field goal is good thing, right? I, I saw it. I knew the, the signal. Uh, but for some reason, every time I did it, 
I blew my whistle, right? And I, got, I guess I got caught up in watching seventh graders like drill threes, like that was a very exciting thing for me. And so everyone would stop and look at me and I would just be like, good job, <laughs> you made it, <laughs> like way to go, like keep playing. And I, I, I tell you, I never got asked back to referee in that homeschool league again after that night. And the players of the game made it pretty clear to me that I wasn't their favorite ref. <laughs> um, I even gave a kid a technical foul. You talk about like, I wanna be in control, right? Made it clear that, that they didn't like me that much as the ref. But listen, they finished that game, they moved on to the next game because what I did was just annoying. Like I, I doubt that those seventh and eighth graders remember that, maybe, maybe they do, but I doubt that looking back, like that scarred them for life. And they're like, oh, you remember that one time? Um, it might be a good story, but it's not something that like affected them uh, so deeply that they never played basketball again or something. But, but unfortunately, not every bad thing that happens to us in life is just annoying like that. Sometimes we experience deep, real trauma. Sometimes things happen to us that are way beyond just annoying, way beyond inconvenient. And I would say that most people have gone through some sort of real trauma in their lives. And unfortunately, some people have gone through far more than their fair share of real trauma in their lives. Just recently, I don't know if you, you were watching this, in a, in a football game between the Bengals and the Bills, there was a player who collapsed on the field after a tackle and his heart stopped. He had to be resuscitated twice before he was taken off the field in an ambulance. He uh, basically died on the field uh, and they resuscitated him. He's doing well uh, now, thankfully, thank God. But uh, in that moment, uh, watching that happen, there are levels of trauma that people went through. You know, the player that was involved in tackling, you know, in the tackle, what, what was going through his mind? The, the players on that, on that guy's team and on the opposing team, the fans who were at the game, the people who were watching on TV, this is something that affects us. And, and the NFL, you know, the game wasn't finished. It was just at the beginning, and the, the NFL had to decide what to do. Um, do we make the teams keep playing? Do we restart the game later on that night or, or reschedule it for later in the week, or do we cancel it? And it was a hard decision because we know that it's not that easy to just get on with your life after you've experienced something that is truly traumatic. We've been going through the life of Joseph in this series. At the end of the book of Genesis, we've been looking at the, the, role, uh, the roles that God is calling us to play. And today I want to look at this story from a little bit different angle than what we've been looking at. Today I want to ask this. How do you play your role, the role that God is calling you to play, when you've experienced real trauma? Now, I don't want to use the word trauma lightly. I feel like this is a word in, in you know, psychology has taken this word and, and it's a word that's in danger of being overused. So I don't want to use it lightly. Uh, the basic definition of, of trauma is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. A deeply distressing or disturbing experience. The American Psychological Association defines it as an emotional response to a terrible event. So really, trauma can either be the experience itself, or you can have a trauma response to something, to a terrible event. Both of those things are trauma. And listen, annoying things happen to me all the time. Even hard things, sometimes bad things, but I wouldn't call all of those things trauma. Trauma is a level, uh, a pretty deep level of, of bad, terrible things. Deeply distressing, terrible things. It's a term that I think we need to reserve for the truly awful things in life. Things that that erode at our humanity, things that make us feel less 
human. Things that, that make us feel devalued. And I think we can agree as we look at Joseph's story that Joseph experienced trauma. I mean, other than Job, who is like the king of experiencing trauma in the Bible, right? And Jesus as well, I think, has, probably has a claim. I think it's, it's hard for me to think of someone in the Bible who went through more than, than Joseph did. And back at the start of this series, we read in chapter 37 about a number of things that, that Joseph's brothers did to him, right? They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. They were jealous of him. They plotted to kill him. They stripped him of his robe and took him and threw him in a cistern. That's never happened to me. They sold him for 20 shekels, 20 shekels of silver. So hate speech, assault, slavery, these are all serious traumas that, that Joseph went through. And, and on top of that, once Joseph was in Egypt, he was falsely accused of something he didn't actually do. And he was thrown into prison for something he didn't actually do, which also traumatic experience, right? Um, and his brothers didn't do that to him, but he was only in Egypt because of what they did do to him. So they had a hand in that trauma as well. They contributed. And somehow, despite everything, despite all that Joseph went through, he stayed faithful to God, and he ended up in this position to be able to help Egypt through a severe famine in the land. And his advice was so good that Pharaoh elevated him to a really important government position, put him in charge of the economy, of the whole country. You know, make this plan happen and get us through this famine. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 42. That's where we are today. We don't know how long the famine had been going at this point. We know it was going to be seven years from Pharaoh's dream. We don't know how far we are into the famine when Genesis 42 happens. But we do know that Joseph's family uh, was living back in Canaan and they were struggling. Jacob heard, Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob, heard that there, were, there was food for sale in Egypt. And so he sent 10 of Joseph's brothers. He sent everybody except Benjamin. He sent them to Egypt to, to buy grain. Now, these are the same people who victimized Joseph when he was young, with their words, with their actions. They're the reason he was a slave. They're the reason he spent time in prison. They're the reason he didn't grow up at home with his family. They're the reason. And so when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them right away. I imagine he thought about it a lot. And he came face to face with the trauma of his past. And it's really hard to blame him for his reaction. Verse 7 says, he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Now, I kind of feel like maybe he's letting off easy. I mean, speaking harshly to them is, you know, the least of what they did to hurt him. And, uh, and then he accuses them of being spies. He insists that they should be punished. And when they try to defend themselves, they have the audacity to make this claim, that we are honest men, not spies. Honest men, really. Okay, so, so Joseph throws him in prison for three days for that one. Uh, and that feels like justice, right? That they're getting what they deserve, finally. But the brothers have no idea what's going on. So they didn't recognize him. They don't know who this is. They just came to buy food, and this crazy governor threw him in jail. And before he throws him in prison, Joseph tells them that they're going to be tested. They're going to be tested to prove their claim that they're honest men. And this is how Joseph decided to face the trauma of his past. He came up with a series of tests to see if his brothers had changed since they hurt him all those years ago. Have they changed? Are they different or will they just do it again? 
And so I want to walk through these tests. I want to look at, uh, I see four of them. I want to walk through these tests and, and talk about what exactly was Joseph trying to do and what he find out. So I'm going to call the first one the prison test. Um, in verses 18 to 20, it says, uh, do this, Joseph says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, he's like, we'll test your premise. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But... You must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. They said that they had another brother who hadn't come, and Joseph's like, all right, well, if you're honest, then show me. You know, prove it, that you have a younger brother. And we don't know why Joseph chose Simeon as the brother who would be the one to stay behind in prison. Um, doesn't say. Uh, just kind of randomly says, you know, and Joseph took Simeon to, to prison. Um, I, my best guess is Reuben has this one verse, and Reuben's the oldest, remember? Reuben has this one verse where he's like, to his brothers, he's like, see, I told you guys we shouldn't have done this. I was against this from the beginning. Like, I, I, didn't, want, I didn't ever want this to happen to Joseph. And Joseph, they didn't know Joseph could understand them because he was like an Egyptian official and he was using a translator. But Joseph understood what they were saying. So I don't know, maybe Joseph's like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know Reuben tried to stand up for me. So maybe he went to the next oldest brother. He's like, all right, Reuben, you can go home. Simeon, jail, right? It's, I don't know, maybe. But, but whatever, whatever reason, Simeon is the one that, that he puts in, in prison, um, and, uh, and he keeps him behind. And, and listen, Joseph, Joseph told them he was testing their honesty by making them prove that they had a younger brother. But, but really, he was testing to see whether they had changed. Will they do it again? Will they traumatize another brother the same way they traumatized him? Will, will they wash their hands of him and leave him in prison? Will they sell him out? And the test starts working right away. The brothers recognize their guilt. They start talking amongst each other, and they're like, we deserve this for what we did. Like, we knew that we thought we got away with it, but, like, we knew that this was coming, right? They said, uh, they said surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. And so their words show remorse. Joseph gets to hear it from their own mouth. They're feeling guilty. But that's not enough for Joseph. I get it. He wants to see them back up those words with actions. It's not that hard to say you feel bad. But have you changed? And so he comes up with another test. I'm going to call it the money test. He gave orders to fill their bags with grain and he put each man's silver back in his sack, the money that they had brought to pay for the grain, and, uh, and, to, give, and to give them provisions for their journey. So Joseph raises the stakes. His brothers sold him into slavery for silver, and now they have a chance to do the same thing with Simeon. Will they, will they take the silver and abandon the brother, like they did to Joseph? Or, or will it be different? Joseph wants to see, do they still value money more than family members? Do they value money more than, than their own flesh and blood? And, and when they get home, uh, they fill their father in. They let Jacob know about everything that's happened, their version. Uh, it's a very uh, specific version that casts them in a decent light, their version. And, and while they're telling their version of the story, Jacob seems sympathetic. He sent them to Egypt, after all, and they couldn't have known that the crazy governor was going to throw one of them in prison. And so it was out of their hands. It was out of their control. Jacob wasn't happy about it, but he was tracking and then they opened their bags, and their bags were full of money, the money they were supposed to use to pay for grain. Now, you can imagine what Jacob's thinking. 
This is the second time that, these bro- that, we, that we know of that these brothers left home and came back one less brother and a lot more money. And Jacob's like, this is a pattern, guys. Like, what's the deal? What's all this money? You know, I, I don't believe you, I think is maybe where he's coming from. Um, and uh, and, and <laughs> they, they, the, the brothers assume that God is punishing them for their past. Jacob blames them uh, for the loss of Joseph and the loss of Simeon, and he, and he, and he refuses to risk losing Benjamin. Uh, even though Reuben, uh, the oldest, uh, steps up, and tries to take responsibility uh, for Benjamin. He tries to convince his dad, no, you send Benjamin back with us, he'll be fine. By the way, I don't know if you, this verse is right at the end of, uh, of chapter 40, right near the end of 42. I can't remember the, na- the number of the verse when Reuben speaks up. Um, his offer doesn't make any sense. Reuben offers to let Jacob execute his two sons if he can't bring Benjamin back safely. So listen, think about this for a second. Those are Jacob's grandsons. Why would Jacob be interested in killing two of his grandsons if his son Benjamin isn't returned? Like, that's not the assurance Jacob's looking for. He's like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, losing more family members is, like, in the cards. That's what I want. It's like, Reuben, come on. Like, think. Right? And, and so this, here again, like, Reuben's, like, earlier when Reuben talked, he was just like, hey, wait, it's not my fault. And now Reuben's like, hey, kill my kids if, they, if he doesn't come back. I'm like, Reuben. Seriously. And after a while, Jacob has no choice. It is interesting that uh, they don't form a rescue plan to go get Simeon the next day. Uh, basically, they wait till the food runs out. <laughs> when the food runs out, they're like, man, we're really hungry. You want to go back to Egypt? <laughs> like, Jacob sends them back. Uh, and, and this time, Judah works it out with his dad. Uh, and Judah takes full respect. He doesn't, Judah's not like, you can kill all my kids. Judah says, no, me. He takes full responsibility for the blame if Benjamin doesn't come back. Um, Reuben puts the lives of his two sons on the line, but Jake, Judah puts his own life on the line. Uh, Judah, Judah says, I, I am responsible. I, I will take his place if necessary. And, and, and Jacob really doesn't have any other choice. The only alternative is starvation for his whole family. So he takes every precaution he can think of. He sends them back with a really generous gift with double the money so that they can pay back what they owed the first time and buy grain the second time. They can explain that it was a mistake. Um, he sent, and he does send Benjamin back with them. The Bible says it uh, this way. The men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The brothers have to think this guy's crazy, right? Like the first time they show up, he starts yelling at them, accusing them of being spies, throws them in prison. The next time they show up, he's like, let's have a party. <laughs> like a big meal, come over to my house. And they're like, what is happening here? And they assume it's some kind of trick, probably because that's what they would have done. Some kind of trick, they're trying, he's going to trap them. Uh, and so they show up early and they plead their case with, with Joseph's servant. Uh, they try to pay back the money from last time. And, uh, and look, they didn't leave Simeon. They came back eventually. They didn't leave Simeon in an Egyptian prison and keep the money. So that's progress, right? They're, they've made some progress from the way they treated Joseph. They, they passed the first two tests. And Joseph's servant tells them that he got their money. He said, I received payment for the grain, so the money that you have in your sacks must have been a gift from God. God's just taking care of you. 
And he brings Simeon back in, uh, out, of, out of jail, and gives him back, and they start another test. Joseph starts another test right away. Uh, I'm going to call it the feast test, right? The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. Yeah, right? Like, how did he know this? Who is this guy? When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Now, do I think that Benjamin ate five times as much food as all of his other brothers? I doubt it. This was a symbolic gesture. Joseph is doing something here, right? Joseph is setting them up. The brothers assume it's a trick, and they were kind of right. He's setting them up. Here we go again, right? Special treatment. One of the brothers is getting special treatment. And it just so happens that it's Benjamin. It's Joseph's full brother. It's the only other son that Rachel had. So just like you know, Joseph got special treatment. And we already know that Jacob was giving Benjamin special treatment. Like he sent the 10 brothers to Egypt. He's like, yeah, go do this. Don't take Benjamin. He's too important. You guys, you know, whatever, get the food, right? We already know that Jacob is treating Benjamin just like he used to treat Joseph. There's still favoritism in this family. And now this random Egyptian official is doing the same thing. Just singles out Benjamin and be like, that guy's better than you. He gets more food, right? And Joseph wants to know, how are they going to respond? How will they handle it when one of their brothers, through no fault of his own, is given special treatment? He didn't ask for that. He was just given extra food. Not his fault. What will the, what will the brothers do about it? Will they do the same thing they did to Joseph? And just like before, the brothers' needs are all taken care of. The brothers had what they needed. They had plenty of food. But one brother is singled out unfairly for preferential treatment. How are they going to handle it? How are they going to handle another one of Rachel's sons being treated with this unmerited favor? And the brothers assumed the feast was a trick to victimize them, kind of in the same way they victimized Joseph, but they're not really taking the bait, right? If this stranger wants to give Benjamin more food, that's up to him. It doesn't really affect them, which again shows some progress in their thinking. That's different than, than the way they felt about Joseph. But Joseph still isn't done testing. And at this point, you start to wonder, will he ever be done testing? Like, we get it, Joseph, like, trauma, but at some point, does the testing go forever? They didn't abandon Simeon for money, but will they abandon a son of Rachel because of jealousy? So it's time for the cup test. Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, Put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack again. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. Oh, devious, Joseph. You're going to set Benjamin up as a thief. The servant chases them down. He makes the accusation, and he searches their bags. And, And the brother's grief when the cup is found in Benjamin's bag is more proof that they've changed. Instead of throwing Benjamin under the bus the way they did to Joseph all those years ago, they all go back to Egypt. They all go to face the punishment together. They could have have got away with all the money, just gone back home, chalked it up as another loss, but we got all this money, we got all this food, we'll be okay without Benjamin. They don't. And representing the whole group, Judah, shows once and for all that he's not Reuben, right? He shows once and for all that 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 they have changed. 
Remember, Judah was the one, all the way back when we started this, back in chapter 37, Judah was the one who came up with the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. Right out of Judah's mouth. It was his plan. And now, he's the one who steps forward and refuses to sell out Benjamin. He won't let this happen again. He's changed. Representing the whole group, he shows that once and for all that they've all changed. They admit that they deserve what's happening to them. Even if they don't deserve, like, in this instance, they're like, well, even if this is really weird, we deserve this. Our actions really do deserve to be punished. Felt like we got away with it, but now, you know, time to pay the piper, right? And, and so uh, Joseph uh, gives them one, one last chance. He tries to set them up one more time, one last chance to repeat their crime by changing the terms. And he says, all right, here's how it'll go. Only one person... Uh, we'll, we'll stay in prison. I'm just going to punish one person. Only one will become my slave. Everybody else can go home. So he, re, he repeats, the, 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 you know, sets it up just like it was before. Only one. Leave Benjamin. Go home. Just like you did to me. I'll, I'll know that that's just who you are. That's just what you do to people, right? And so Judah begs Joseph to let him take Benjamin's place. The one who traumatized Joseph by selling him into slavery uh, out of his own envy and his own anger is now willing to become a slave himself so that the rest of his brothers, especially the favorite son, Benjamin, so they can all be free to return home to their father. Judah is a changed man. And Joseph plainly sees it. And so now, Joseph the one who experienced trauma, Joseph has a choice to make. How much testing is enough testing? Because at some point, the testing just turns into punishment, right? At some point, there's no more testing, and now it's just punishing. Then it, it just becomes revenge. How much testing is enough? When it comes to these family members who hurt him deeply, these people who are supposed to love him but instead victimized him, does Joseph want restoration or does Joseph want retribution? Does he want to keep hurting by hurting them and, and just living and wallowing in pain or does he want to start healing? Will he punish them or will he forgive them? What do you do when the person who hurt you is sorry? What do you do when the person who traumatized you has changed? That's hard. I can stand up here and be like, oh, the Bible says forgive them and move on with your life. And it does, but that's hard. And these are the same choices we all face when we experience trauma. And here's the thing. The Bible doesn't hold Joseph up as a pattern for, for how God wants us to deal with, with trauma. That's not how Bible narrative works. The story shows us how Joseph dealt with his trauma. And there's value in that. We can, we can learn lessons from it. We can look at what he did. As you would expect, it was kind of messy. I mean, he was a real person, and, and the way he dealt with this was messy. He walks a line between testing their character and punishing them. Sometimes it feels like he's being like really shrewd in the way he's testing them, and sometimes it feels like he's just being harsh in, and punishing them for what they did. Um, and so he kind of like walks this line. He walks the line between abusing his power to manipulate them uh, and then being generous with them, like giving them all their money back. Uh, he went through these conflicting emotional breakdowns. What do you think the brothers were thinking when this like, Egyptian governor just started like crying in front of them and like, ran out of the room? 
what is this guy's deal, right? So he has these emotional breakdowns. He's, he you know, goes from speaking harshly to them to running out of the room to go and weep. And then he has to compose himself. And who knows what was going through his head when, when he decided to give their money back. Was he setting them up for a guilt trip? Was that like next level manipulation to like make sure their dad didn't trust them ever again? Or was he just being generous to give them their money back and be a blessing to his family? Or, or was it both? Or may, maybe he didn't have a fully formed plan. And maybe he was winging it as, as, as he went. You know, because that's what would happen for me. Like, I, I would just be like, oh, man, I don't know what to do now. So maybe I'll try this. The Bible doesn't give us a pattern to follow to deal with our trauma. The Bible is not a psychology textbook. It doesn't give us a pattern to follow to deal with trauma other than to make a larger point. That you do have a choice when it comes to how you handle it. Just like Joseph did. You do have a choice. He was being careful to make sure that his brothers wouldn't hurt him again. But can you ever be sure of that? Can you ever be sure that they won't hurt you again? Eventually, eventually you have to trust God to be the judge instead of you. So how do you play your role in God's plan when you've experienced real trauma? I can't tell you that. What a great sermon, right? I can't tell you that. That's up to you. I can tell you, though, that the trauma that you have experienced does not disqualify you from the role God has planned. In fact, God frequently uses the traumas of our past to accomplish his plan in unexpected ways. Just look at the story of Joseph. So maybe the question we should should ask is not, how can I play my role when I've experienced trauma? Maybe the right question is, how do my experiences fit in the bigger picture of God's plan? Because Joseph is finally starting to see the plan. You know, all these years he's been faithful to God. I'll trust you. I don't know why I'm in prison, but I'll trust you. I don't know the plan. And now he starts to see it a little bit, right? It says early in chapter 42, it says, and then Joseph remembered his dreams. He starts to see the plan a little bit. He realizes his dreams are coming true, but not the way he thought. He thought the dreams were about his importance in his own family, that he was better than them, but actually they pointed to the way God was going to use him to rescue his people from famine and and to bring them to a place where they could thrive. Because the backbone of the book of Genesis, really the whole Old Testament, is the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. He promised Abraham a place, prosperity, protection, and a people. I'm a real preacher. Those all started with P. You hear that? A place, (laughs) prosperity, protection, and a people. He promised them that, but not just any people, a people that would bless the whole world. At the beginning of Joseph's story, you're looking at this family, you know, the people of the promise, and you got to wonder, how is God going to build a nation that will bless the whole world out of a family like this? A family that's filled with self-centered people who are always on the brink of self-destruction, right? Generational favoritism that, you know, Jacob and Esau experienced it from their parents and then Jacob just passes it on down to his family that threatens to tear the family apart. Big individual character flaws that lead people to do pretty bad things, um, All this stuff constantly threats to God's promise, but through it all, God has been doing something bigger. 
And at the beginning of Joseph's story, Israel is a family of somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 people, right? There's, there's Jacob uh, and, and his wife, and they have 12 sons, and they have wives, and there's some kids there. So somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 people at the beginning of Joseph's story. By the end of the story, at the start of the, at the, start of the book of Exodus, after Genesis is over, there's been about 400 years of time in between there where the, they've been in Egypt. At the end of that story, at the start of Exodus, Israel has grown to a people numbering somewhere around 2 million. So 70 to 2 million, God brought them to this incubator called Egypt, and they were able to thrive and grow and, and not self-destruct. He did it in such a weird way. But he built Abraham's family into a people, into a nation, just like he promised he would. And God didn't approve of the trauma that Joseph's brothers put him through. God didn't orchestrate it. Certainly, he didn't cause it. They were responsible for their own actions. They did what they did. God didn't need it to accomplish his plan either. God could have done this any number of ways. But look, that's what they chose to do. God stubbornly gives us free will no matter how bad we are at using it. And we have choices to make. Joseph's brothers made their choices, but God also has choices to make. Joseph's brothers made their choices, then God made his. And God chose that no matter how bad things went, he, he would use it for good. And that's what he did. He chose to turn it around and use it in a way that would bring blessing. Even when others intend to harm you and cause you pain and trauma, God can use it to bring about something good. He doesn't promise to shield us from all evil. If somebody told you that, they lied to you. There is no promise in Scripture that God will shield us from all evil and once we become Christians, our lives will be fine and nothing bad's going to happen anymore. That's not in there. God doesn't make that promise to us to shield us from evil. But we can believe that God is able to accomplish good anyway. So I want to rephrase the question one last time. This is where I want to land. Instead of how do I play my role when I've experienced trauma? That's a good question. But th- I think the question we really should ask is do I trust God's plan enough to trust God with my trauma? Let's pray. Father, this is hard stuff. People hurt us and people hurt us deeply. And trust is difficult. And so God, that's what I'm praying for this morning. I'm praying, I'm praying that you would strengthen us in a way that helps us Stop testing and take a step to trust you. To not have to be the one in charge, but to let you be the one in charge. To not be the the one who's the judge in the situation, but to allow you to be the judge. But to not uh, avenge and, and take revenge, but to let you handle things and to just live for you. God, it's hard. Our trauma's real. I just pray for the strength to give it to you. In Jesus' name. So we've mentioned in this series that, that contrary to our assumptions, it's Judah and not Joseph who is in the line of Jesus. Um, I, I think that just we, we kind of think like, oh yeah, Joseph gets this big long story and, and the line flows through him. That's not true. It goes through Judah. And in this story, we finally start to see Judah acting in a way that reminds us of Jesus. He's, he's come around. He's grown. He says, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. 
what, what Judah did for one brother, he, t- he took his place. Jesus does that for all of us. He took a punishment in our place, just like Judah's willing to do. Now, the difference is we're more like the older brothers. We, we actually deserve the punishment. Benjamin really didn't, but, but we do. And Jesus takes it from us anyway. Even, even when we do deserve it, Jesus is like, no, it's all right, I'll take it anyway. And so we take communion together every week as a reminder that, that it should have been us. It should have been us on that cross, but, but God loved us enough to die in our place so we could live free of sin and free of shame. And, and so when the tray passes by this morning, go ahead and take a set of cups, juice on top and, and bread on the bottom, and hold on to them, uh, and then we'll take communion together. His body given for us. His blood poured out for our sin. So what will it take to trust God with your trauma? For Joseph, it took time. Somewhere between 13 and 20 years passed before his brother showed up and he had to face him. And he had lots of time to think through what had happened to him. Think about, what will I say if I ever see them again? It took time. And for Joseph, it took testing. He, he needed to see that the ones who traumatized him had changed. And spoiler alert, he, he reached a point where he stopped testing and he stopped punishing and he decided to forgive. But that's for next week. For now, let's stand and sing.